My name is Klaus Rostel, and I'm the director of the College of Extraordinary Experiences. You're listening to the business of extraordinary experiences. Today's guest is Chantal van Kempen. Chantal is an experience designer. She's a social innovator. She created something called the Order of the Round Table for the Ministry of Security and Justice in the Netherlands. And she's also a co-founder of something called Unternehmen mit Ballen, which, even though my Dutch is terrible, I've been told, translates roughly into entrepreneurship with balls. Chantal, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Let's start there. Entrepreneurship with balls. And there's also something about taking action. Tell me about your company and what you do. Well, basically, uh, we started this company because we noticed that a lot of companies, um, they, how do you call it? They have a lot of meetings and they talk a lot, but they don't take a lot of action. And we believe that if you want to swim, you have to jump in the pool and you can talk about swimming or you can follow conferences, but then you still don't know how to swim. So that's why it's called entrepreneurship with balls the balls to take action. So sometimes I guess your work is going into companies and organizations and getting them to actually do stuff instead of just talking about it. Yes, definitely. One place where you did this, and and this is, I love the the whole framework of it. So we're going to start there. The order of the round table. Tell me about the order of the round table. Well, the order of the round table is a game we built for the Ministry of Security and Justice. And they had a problem with inclusion and diversity. They wanted to um, have a more inclusive company, but they didn't know how to do it. And they asked, can you build something? And then uh, we started doing a lot of interviews and we found out that inclusion wasn't really a subject. A lot of people uh, felt they had to do something themselves. So we built a game around that. And it's called the Order of the Roundtable. You you mentioned when we talked earlier something about that. You said that when you asked them, they said, inclusion isn't my problem. It's somebody else's. Yes. And, and how did you change that with the game? Give me some examples of what you did. Okay. Well, for instance, um, you have a lot of psychology um, where you see the movie uh, that there's somebody on the street and nobody's helping. And you would think, well, I would be the person to help. Well, we in the game so like they had to exclude a group and then we just gave them the order you have to exclude somebody and everybody just did that they just said oh okay i'm gonna do that and then we said well where's your personal um uh, responsibility you could say i don't want to do this or uh, we're not gonna exclude somebody but they didn't so they were shown in a very very simple fashion that they were the people in the video, not helping up the stranger. And it's hard to argue. One thing is seeing the video and saying, I would do it differently. But once you're there and you haven't, then it's, I guess it's easier to be open to change once you've realized you're just as bad as everyone else. Yes, that's definitely uh, our main goal. Yeah. Tell me something about the 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 game design, the kind of the, the, the transparency and the whole uh, round table courage and, and some of the things you did there because I think that's interesting. Yeah, so we build a game around different values we think are important to create inclusion, for instance, courage or uh, showing uh, compassion or being open. And to create a, uh, to make it visible, 
we uh, used different like ball pit balls and people could see how courageous somebody was or how um, honest somebody was. And then to make it visual, is, is, it's easier that way to see how people have grown. So people would walk around with courageous balls or with, uh, as an example, or how would, I mean, I guess they would be able to see them. They do, do they walk around with them like in a string on their neck or I'm trying to visualize it here and I'm getting interesting results, but I'm not sure they're correct. <laughs> well, we had like, it was like a circle and in, in that circle, there were different um, uh, like transparent um, like pipes and people could put their ball pits in and then you could see from everybody how uh, it would look like. Ah, okay, that way, that way. How was this received? I mean, and first off, how many people were part of this? Was this 10 people or a thousand uh, people? Or It was 20 people uh, who did it and it was like two days. So they had one morning, then they got homework, then they came back and we did it with two groups for now. And uh, we're going to do three more groups in the next and And how did they like it? Because I guess if you're working at the Dutch Ministry for Security and Justice, this is not how you expect your Monday morning to begin. Did, did you get any resistance? Did people love it? What, what sort of comments and reactions did you get? They actually liked it because it was a game. And I believe gamification can do that. You don't resist a game because it's mainly fun and it feels kind of safe to uh, say more things or do more things. So so they basically, they said it was fun and a lot of um, things you usually don't see always came back in the game. So for instance, um, we had a game with not a lot of rules and then they made up their own rules because they couldn't handle that there weren't that much rules. <laughs> so the bureaucrats needed more rules. I, I love that. Give me... Give me, apart from that, which is fun in itself, give me three things that you learned from doing that project. Well, I've learned uh, from this project is that you have to go in one road and try it out and find out if it works and then go to the next. So in the brainstorming phase, you can just come up with new ideas and new ideas and new ideas, but you have to just go for an idea and try it and then come back to it if it doesn't work and try a new one, but don't stay in that vague phase. I think for those of us who work with design thinking and rapid prototyping and so on, we're we're very much on board with that. So complete agreement from here. Okay, so that's one good thing. Yes. Two more. Uh, the, the second thing is that um, there's always a space in the game that you don't design. That's where the magic happens. Mm, so say more about that. Well, if you have like, for instance, um, a game with a lot of rules, people are gonna challenge those rules or they're gonna try to work around it. If you have a game with not a lot of rules, they're gonna make their own or they, they're just gonna discuss about rules. So it happens within the thing you didn't design. And I guess that that is lovely. And I guess that could also be said when we're talking not so much games, but social roles and social gatherings, that some of the magic happens when there's doubt. And if there's no doubt, people will definitely create that. Is it allowed? Can we do it? What is not okay? What is okay? Can we challenge it? I guess whether it's it's a game or a, a bigger social group, there are going to be all these things that are, as you put them, things that are allowed and are not allowed. And yeah, I like that, that the magic happens where 
outside of the design space in some sense. Okay, give me a third. A third thing I've learned is, um, let me think about it. It's also unfair. I always ask these three things <laughs> questions because they're so easy to ask and then people have to come up with answers. Um, well, what I also noticed is like uh, you have like a good problem and a real problem. So you always come in with this problem, but that's no, not, no, that's never the problem. There's always something underneath it. What's the real problem, but they don't want to show it to you. Oh, so when they bring in the consultants, they say, this is what we, this is what's wrong. It's and it's problem. never, that's, that's never the whole thing. It's always just scratching the surface for the real thing because they don't want to reveal the real pain, or maybe they're not even aware of it. I think they're not aware of it. It's not that they don't want to show it, but it's usually the intangible that's the real problem. That is interesting. There's, uh, just to stick with this sort of set of threes, there's a thing that when I first was was scouting your LinkedIn profile to kind of get some inspiration for our talk, there's a thing that I noted that I thought I have to ask about this. One of the, and, and that is that of the stuff you do, it says enthusiasm, humor, and a touch of brutality are used to bring out the potential power and talent of the participants. Yeah. Now, enthusiasm and humor, I get that. But I had to think, huh? And a touch of brutality. Tell me more about that. Well, for instance, we, uh, we wrote two emails. One was like a really formal email. It was for an invitation to join this game. We had one formal email that was like, okay, if you want to do something with inclusion, you should follow this game. And one was, uh, well, there was a magic. We I stuttered on a magical thing. There is a, a different loophole and we're going to invest in it. It was like very um, storyline email. And then we said, okay, you have to choose. We say you should be, do the storylines, but you can also choose the, the other one. And it was sent by like the highest director of the ministry. So it was going to like, 3,000 people or something. And then they had to choose. And um, the, our, um, how do you call it? Our client uh, first said, well, maybe we should do the safe one. And then the other one said, no, you, say, you said uh, you wanted to do more storylines. And then eventually they chose the storyline. So that's the brutality one. If you want to do this, you should really do this. And I guess that fits well with your overall idea of that it takes not just thinking, but also action. That if you want to do this, you need to do this. And sometimes that can be a bit brutal. Yeah, definitely. Something a bit less brutal, but also interesting. You do work with positive psychology. Now, there are a lot of people in different design spaces that, of course, dabble in psychology. Some of them are even psychologists. Um, some very good ones, but mostly, and this is maybe just my prejudice and experience, psychology focuses on all the stuff that's wrong with us. And when I first stumbled upon, uh, across positive psychology, I was like, ooh, how nice. We're, it's not just about fixing us, it's about making us happy and, and content and so on. Yeah. How does that influence your work that you have a, a positive psychology kind of slant or, or kind of angle on things? Well, I think um, I think it, it it you see it back in our games because if you 
Like, for instance, if somebody tells you, you did everything wrong and we need to fix this and everything, then you you don't think, yes, let's do this. We're going to do this and we're a team and we're going to go for it. So, for instance, um, what's commonly known in psychology uh, is that trust, if you have trust, you get a good team. So if you if I trust you and I don't have to see how you work, but I believe you do your thing and I do my thing, then I have twice as much time to do my thing. Because you don't need to work on, of course. And I guess for some places, there's there's a there's a balance for especially big organizations. Because if you're a small organization, you usually work in a small trusted group. And I guess you and your co-founder in, in Unternehmen mit Ballen know this very well. You trust each other. You know each other. There's the personal trust. But yeah. if you have a thousand people, you can't spend time developing that. So you need to have a sort of institutional trust that this guy is from division purple so he's good enough yeah that's correct and when you when you talk with clients about this sort of thing or, or when it kind of when it comes to your actual work in the field how do you feel is it not a ratio but but how much should you spend on institutional trust like trust the uniform and how much on trust the person getting to know the person versus getting to know the role does it make sense or or am i just uh... I think I think the you can build trust on a on an institution i don't believe i don't believe an institution is a lot of people who work there so you trust eventually you trust the people who work there and it's hard when you have a big cor- corporation of course but uh, for instance they did experiences in google that if you trust your teammates uh, then you have like a 60% higher productivity so if everybody would do that then you have a trusted organization. I don't believe you trust like in some sort of magical ministry, for instance, but if you trust the people around you and you trust that they do the good things and everybody does that, then you have completed trust. I I hear what you're saying. On the other hand, I mean, when you go to a doctor, I guess you go in there, your leg is broken and you're saying, please help me, please help me. And then the doctor doesn't say, we need to trust each other first. How about we... Have a nice dinner and go to the movies and spend some time walking the streets of Amsterdam, and then maybe I'll fix your leg. I guess there's, and that's what I mean by institutional trust that you trust the role, even if you've never met the doctor. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, well, at this moment, I don't know how it's uh, it's in your in your country, but the institutions are not very trustworthy at this moment. Uh, but even on a company level, for instance, that's also psychology. If there's more trust in these institutions, the overall welfare is better. So even if it's as big as like the trust in your government, if you have that, the welfare is better. They they research that. So yes, I think it's it's so important. Even if it's a, a large thing, you it's hard to trust, but you should. You, and how do you foster it? We both are lucky enough to come from Northern European uh, social democracies and, and the, the Scandinavian countries and uh, Netherlands. And a couple of others tend to score high on things like institutional trust and, and on lack of uh, corruption. And, and some, of, some of these nice things in, in society when international surveys are done, how do you promote that on a 
on kind of a, a small level, when you come out and do an event or, or do a thing with clients, how do you create that trust? I mean, nobody ever won by coming and saying, trust me, I know what I'm doing. How, how do you trust them first, so to speak? Well, always, uh, I believe trust always comes with transparency and openness. So if I'm open and transparent and say, this is how we're going to do it. And I, for instance, if we have a, a new client and we haven't done it before, we're not going to pretend we've done it before. We're going to say, yes, we've never done it before, but we can try and we're going to uh, see how it goes. And that's how you build trust, by showing yourself totally. And then people can trust you back. That's a good segue that you didn't ask for, but now you're going to end up in the trap because my next question is, when is it hard being Chantal? When when do you just want to give up and do something else with your life? Um, well, for me, I've also trusted people and they didn't deliver, for instance. And then it was really hard to come back from it. But I I still try to do it again and again. Because if I don't, then I will be cynical. But it's really hard if you if you're beaten down to do it again. So it's it's the the challenge of getting burned and still walking into the fire, so to speak. Yes. Yes. And that sounds beautiful that you still do it, but when is have has this cost you friendships or colleagues or or, or clients or um have you shot your dog in anger? I mean when when is it? I hope you haven't, but when when is uh well, um, I've, there was a time that I was doing, like, I was helping everybody else. I was helping the whole world, but I wasn't helping myself. Mm, yeah. And, um, like, for instance, I was working six days for other people, but I couldn't pay my own rent because I was so focused on the other world. Yeah, that, uh, the, the ideal of selfless service is sometimes, uh, forgets that there's a self that also needs a bit of service once in a while. Yeah, definitely that. Yes. I'm glad to hear that you seem to not be uh, not be doing that at the moment, which is a, a nice improvement. Yes. Something about the business side of this, because you actually work as, partly, as an experience design consultant. And I, I, anybody who has that title has my immediate respect for getting it to work. Tell me about the business side. Where do you, where do you sniff out clients? How does, how do you go from oh I'm smart and I can design experiences to actually paying rent? Give us some tips on the being a freelancer in the experience design business. Well, um, what I found out every time I'm courageous, it works out. So if I try, I I'm I I find sales for instance very hard. But when I do, when I do send that email or I do say I can do something for you, then it always comes back to me. So instead of stopping yourself because it's hard, you do it anyway and it actually turns out to work pretty well. Yes, that's because the, I think that's the hard part, the, the showing up part and to show what you can really do because that's what you have to do and that's what I'm still struggling with. But I think the from the business side, that's what you need. Okay, so that's that's one thing. I think that's a very useful tip for many of us that send that email, 
do the call, go to the thing, show up, because there's a better chance it'll work. Give me two more. Um, from the business side. Uh, I mean, well, a lot of people struggle with things like pricing. A classic freelancer dilemma is how do you price yourself? Should it cost a thousand euro an hour or should it cost 10 euro an hour? Or should it cost one euro an hour and then you take everything because at least then you're working? Well, um, we for the game we build that's already there, we have a fixed fee. For instance, this sure. is how much it costs because we already made the game, we already made the investment, so you know what it costs. But um, when you have a company, it's also uh, one person said to me, like, you have to choose if it's for pr promotion, if it's a promotion price and pleasure. Ah, uh, yeah, the three Ps. I've, the three? Yeah. I've, I've heard that used a lot. And if you can get two, it's fine. But you should at least have two. Yes. 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 And I mean, you've been doing this for quite a number of years. This is not something where you've just been running your own company for a month or so. You've been doing this for some time and you've been freelancing for an even longer time. Yes. What's been the hardest part of that, that where you know something now that you wished you knew then, back when you started as a freelancer? So that'll be, we'll use that as tip number three. Um. Mm. I have to really think about it, but I think that um, it's always better to have one game done than 10 on paper. <laughs> <laughs> I think the number of, of kind of creatives and artists out there who are listening to this and hearing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will agree with that. I'm, I'm a big fan of finished is better than almost perfect. So, yes, 10 almost perfect things that could be good if you just spent more time versus one that's actually done. I preach, preach. I, uh, I follow that. On that note, though, if we're talking about done, how do you, how, how do you balance that? There are a lot of people who especially when they're, they're in any sort of creative business, struggle with perfectionism and wanting to make it better because they know it can be better. How do you deal with that? How do you say, now it's done? Well, usually it's done because... There's, there's no more time? time. <laughs> yes, that's basically it. You, you try to fix it, and then there's the moment that the people come in, and then it has to be done. Because so it's, it's literally, <laughs> it's done when they walk into the door, essentially. Yeah, basically. That's I, I respect that. I, uh, yeah, there's some nice quote. I can't remember who said it, but said that uh, the t a task will take the time that's set aside for it. Yeah. And I think that, that fits your philosophy very well. I think so, yeah. Chantal, before we get to housekeeping and the final moments, there's a chance here for you to share, again, three, because... You've, you found out I'm a three-person by now. Three experience design tips that you've kind of collected throughout your career. Or it doesn't matter what industry you're in or whether you work as a, a person doing ice sculptures or, or a lawyer changing their business. Three experience design tips. Okay. Well, for me, uh, one tip is to make it visual. 
for instance, the best uh, experiences I have seen were also very tangible and visible because uh, a story is can only co come so far, but if you can really touch it and feel it and smell it, and then then you really come into the zone. That's that's make it visible. The irony of that being a tip given on a podcast is not lost on any of us. <laughs> but that is that is great. Make it visual. Um, at least hear us. Yeah, number two. Yes. Um, well, I believe in real-time game. For instance, uh, we were one of the three. Uh, we were one of the three persons for the project, and there were two apps, and one was our game on set and in real life. And I believe that not everything can be solved by an app. Not everything can be solved by an app. I will concur with that one as well. Human-centered design is sometimes also just having humans involved yeah. in the end thing. Okay, that's two. And with the third one, it is that I believe that you should build think things from like from enthusiasm and do things that are nice and not things that are disciplined or ordered or, or structured or but the the for instance i saw one experience design that was that you could call up and you get like a lollipop served on a on a silver plate and there was somebody bringing it to you and then i thought that's really nice and they said in it was in a book and they said well we could also put it next to the vending machine and people also would have ice cream, but it wouldn't be the same experience. No, that is true. Very, very, very true. One comes from experience and one comes from efficiency. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, no. Enthusiasm versus efficiency. I uh, very much am on board with that. And it's also some of the things that, that I guess you've experienced as well, that when you come into some of these big organizations and you try to say, have a little bit more fun, live a little, instead of just looking at numbers, they look at you like you're some sort of alien. And then the moment they get started, they're like, wow, we're aliens as well. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Definitely. Rounding off from the alien metaphor, if people want to find you online or, or physically, where, where can one find Chantal? Well, mainly on LinkedIn, I think. So Chantal van Kempen, uh, that's where you can find me. Uh, we have a website called ondernemenmetballen.nl, but it's in Dutch, so you have to. <laughs> so if you get there, you've asked for it, yeah. Yeah, so, and on Instagram, at ondernemenmetballen or Chantal van Kempen. We'll, uh, we'll try to get Vanna to put it in the show notes, my hardworking producer who makes sure this actually becomes something while we just do the fun stuff. Thank you, Vanna. <laughs> at the end of this, I always let my guests take over a bit. So is there any question you feel I should have asked you or any shout out you want to give to the world or a rant, or maybe you want to read a poem? You don't have to read a poem, but you have the floor for a moment. It's yours. Okay, let me see. I don't know anything. I think I've said everything I wanted to say, except go do the things you want to do and um, have fun with it. So that's basically it. 
I like that. I think that's a nice way to, I've said everything, go do the things you want to do, have fun with it. Simple and crystal clear. To all of you listeners out there, you've been listening to The Business of Extraordinary Experiences. You've heard Chantal Van Kempen and me, your host, Klaus Hostel. Thank you for listening.